Section 16 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bo Wood. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh Mysterious Disappearances Part 6 Donald McLeod An Accident Policy Ensuring the Life of Donald McLeod of Sherbrooke, Province of Quebec Dominion of Canada, was written December 21, 1875, by the Travelers Insurance Company. Six days later, the company's agent in Sherbrooke gave notice that the policy had become a claim, stating, in the course of his letter, that Mr. McLeod went to the river for a barrel of water, and half an hour afterwards, his team was found at the riverbank, his barrel afloat down the stream, and his cap floating near the team. Further, that at the time of writing, half past 9 p.m., parties were still searching for the body in open water in boats with torches. In a sworn statement of the wife of McLeod, it is stated briefly that the late Donald McLeod lost his life by drowning at the junction of the rivers Magog and St. Francis on the evening of the 27th day of December, 1875. The particulars of his sudden departure are more fully given in the statement of one Joseph Whitehouse, who, on his oath, said, I was in the employ of the late Donald McLeod, livery stable keeper in the city of Sherbrooke, was employed as an ostler. Thomas Price was employed there as teamster. About half past five o'clock in the evening of the 27th day of December, 1875, Price and myself were at work in McLeod's stables under his orders, when he entered the stable, having just come from his house, which is nearby. I assisted him in harnessing a horse to the sleigh, with which he had been accustomed to draw water from the river. The sleigh was coated with frozen ice, and the horse was a rather unsteady one. He drove to the river, and I remained in the stable intending to await his return, as the distance is not far and the trip ought not to have taken him more than 15 or 20 minutes. Mrs. McLeod, however, called me to go to tea and told me to leave a lantern for her husband. I went with Price and we had tea. On going back to the stable, we saw that McLeod had not returned. Price went to see what the trouble was, and in a few moments drove into the yard 
with the horse and sleigh, without barrel or pail, and telling me to hurry with him to the river, as he feared MacLeod was drowned. We went at once to the river. The barrel and pail had by this time floated beyond the mouth of the Magog River and was being carried by the current down the St. Francis River towards the ice. The St. Francis River was open only for a small space about the mouth of the Magog River, and the remainder of it was all frozen over. It was a very cold night, and before lights and assistance of any use could be had, the body must have been carried under the ice of the St. Francis, as it could not be found in the small space of open water. The current of both rivers coming together at the mouth of the Magog would have a tendency to drive the body down the St. Francis, and under the ice. From all the circumstances, I have no doubt of his having been drowned on that occasion. The affidavit of Thomas Price corroborates that of White House and also relates the following incidents. I went to the stable after supper and saw that McLeod had not yet returned from the river. I started out to look down the hill to see if he was coming. Not seeing him, I went to the river. There I found the horse backed into the stream, the horse's forefeet standing on the edge of the ice in about a foot of water, the hind feet over the edge of the ice in water about three feet deep. The sleigh apparently was afloat, and the barrel and pail were missing. I took the horse and sleigh immediately to the stable, and with others hastened back to the river, telling persons on the way of my fears that MacLeod was drowned. A crowd soon gathered one of whom found McLeod's cap drifted and frozen to the shore ice. At the mouth of the Magog River, where this occurred, a strong current prevails, and the waters of the St. Francis, into which the Magog empties, must have carried the body under the ice, as it could not be found in the open water. Price further averes that he has no doubt from all the circumstances of the evening that McLeod was drowned on that occasion. In further support of the alleged drowning, the proofs of death exhibit the affidavit of a person who, passing at the time, noticed the horse and sleigh on the bank of the Magog as McLeod was in the act of backing down to the river. It was too dark for this person to distinguish McLeod sufficiently to recognize him, but he observed a man standing on the rear end of a sleigh or sled behind a barrel backing a horse into the water. As this was a common occurrence, the witness paid no particular attention to it at the time. 
but returning soon afterwards, when passing the same place where he had previously noticed the horse and sleigh, in looking across the river, he saw a water barrel and pail floating out from the Magog toward the St. Francis River. Witness simply thought the man whom he had previously seen had lost his barrel and pail, and he further states that the interval of time between going and returning was no more than would have been necessary for the occurrence of such an accident to the person in charge of the team. Upon this evidence, the widow of McLeod demanded payment of the principal sum insured, and similar affidavits were submitted to the Aetna Life Insurance Company of Hartford in support of a claim arising under a policy written upon McLeod's life by that company. In presenting these claims against the insurance companies, a gentleman who announced himself as a brother-in-law of the widow and also as secretary to one of the ministers of the crown, addressed the companies by letters saying, The evidence is, of course, circumstantial, but I believe no equitable doubt remains of Mr. McLeod's death at the time and in the manner specified. The preliminary proofs were not submitted until the May following McLeod's disappearance they having been delayed in view of the possibility of his body being found on the breaking up of the ice. In the month of July, a body was found in the St. Lawrence River, into which the St. Francis flows, which was thought to be that of McLeod. Upon examination, it was found to be the body of a much older person than McLeod and although the clothing upon it was torn to rags by the action of the water, sufficient remained to determine that the pantaloons and shirt were different in fabric from those which McLeod was known to have worn. An early investigation of the circumstances surrounding the case at the time of McLeod's disappearance led to the belief that the manner of his departure was not strictly in accordance with the presumption of death by drowning. There were numerous little facts, trivial in themselves and apparent only to the most careful observer, which justified such belief and which furnished the usual earmarks of fraud. In illustration, we may mention the finding of McLeod's cap. It was an old, tightly fitting sealskin cap, which drawn upon his head as he was accustomed to wear it, and especially as he would wear it upon so cold a night as the one in question, would not easily come off upon his accidentally falling into the water. But if it did come off, it could not of itself or by the action of the current, get upon the fixed shore ice where it was found. This was simply a physical impossibility, overlooked at the time, but nonetheless 
significant. It was a long time before any trace of the missing man was obtained. But through post office communications, it was suspected he had gone south and probably to Louisville, Kentucky. Inquiries in Louisville led to the finding of a maternal uncle of McLeod. And this uncle, although he knew nothing of the missing man, was able to give the names and residences of relatives of whom inquiry might be made. One of the names thus mentioned was that of the Louisville man's brother, another uncle of McLeod. And near his residence, upon a sheep ranch in Live Oak County, Texas, the materialized form of Donald McLeod, the doppelganger, may be seen. There his wife has rejoined him, and there we leave him. Anyone who will examine a map of the country will find it to be a long and perilous journey for a man to undertake, especially during the inclement season of the year upon which McLeod set out upon his voyage. Starting from the mouth of the Magog River, thence by the St. Francis and St. Lawrence, to the Atlantic, much of the way under ice, thence floating against the current of the Gulf Stream, he is carried through the Atlantic, into and through the Gulf of Mexico, thence being irresistibly drawn into the mouth of the Nueces River. He is finally cast ashore upon the riverbank near the little town of Oakville. Later developments suggest another and quite different route as the one by which he finally arrived in Texas. It is thereby shown that upon the night of his disappearance, he first put his fur coat and an extra cap into the water barrel which he took to the river. Then, after arranging the horse and sleigh in the water, as subsequently discovered, tipping the barrel and pail into the river and throwing his wet cap on the ice in a place where the current could not wash it away, he went down along the bank of the St. Francis until he could cross upon the ice to the opposite side. He then proceeded on the ice up the river until he passed the railway passenger station. When he pursued his way along the track and walked thereon to a station about 20 miles east from Sherbrooke, where he entered a Pullman sleeping car. He paid his fare on the cars to escape recognition by purchasing a ticket at the station, and thus continued on his way, mostly by rail. The reader is at liberty to adopt either version of his journey to Texas, but the one by water is more consistent with the proofs of death. A Repentant Fool In the year 1874, resided in Louisiana, Pike County, Missouri, a man named Charles A. Folk, about 35 years old, 
respectably connected, and possessed of considerable intelligence, but not much energy. He had been a section boss on a railroad. He had a wife who was the stronger-minded of the two and played the part of Gretchen to his Rip Van Winkle. For like Rip, he was fond of hunting, fishing, loafing about corners, and whittling the edges of dry goods boxes. His domestic relations were not altogether lovely, and he was addicted to long absences from home. He did not have the utmost confidence in the fidelity of his wife, but was somewhat indifferent about the matter. Among folks' intimate friends was one William Mosley, a resident of Bowling Green, the county seat of Pike, where many a time and oft the eloquence of men whose fame has reached as far as St. Louis has shaken the rafters of the courthouse. Folk suspected that Mosley was a trifle too intimate with his wife, but like a good, easy soul, he said nothing and expressed no surprise on finding them together on his return from a fishing excursion to the Schnei or a duck hunt on Grassy Creek. One day, while the three friends were together, the subject of life insurance came up, and it was agreed between them that folk should take out a policy of $10,000 on his life in favor of Mrs. Folk. Mosley, the generous and disinterested friend, furnished the money to pay the premiums. On the 13th of August, 1874, the policy was taken out in the New York life in favor of Olive A. Folk. The next friend, or whatever the term may be in such transactions, was William Mosley. The half-yearly premiums were $125 each. The first one was paid, and the next was due in February, 1875. So far, everything seemed proper and legitimate. About the middle of January, folk disappeared and was seen no more at the corner grocery nor trolling for catfish in Salt River. At that time, the Mississippi was frozen over, and at a certain place, there was a large air hole. Near this air hole, the coat, hat, and gun of folk were found, left lying around loose, as a man would have left such things when he intends plunging into eternity through such an air hole in the ice. Poor fellow, weary of life or maddened by jealousy, he had gone to a shivering death in the bosom of the dark river and would become food for the very catfish he had attempted to ensnare. His disconsolate wife was almost distracted by her sad bereavement and wept long and loudly. Mosley, too, 
his bosom friend, groaned and lamented and moralized on the uncertainty of life and the horror of suicide. Search was made for the body. The air hole was sounded and other air holes below were watched, but the body of the section boss did not pop up. After a short season of mourning, the widow thought of the insurance on the life of the dear departed and consulted her next friend, Mosley, concerning it. It was necessary to employ a lawyer, and one David P. Dyer was selected as the most suitable lawyer to manage the case. Proofs of the drowning of folk were sent to Mr. William L. Hill, the local agent of the New York Life at St. Louis, and the payment of the policy demanded. As the corpus delicti had not been proved, Mr. Hill concluded to wait a while before paying the $10,000. The result showed that his caution was well taken. A few days afterwards, Mr. Hill received a letter dated Memphis, Tennessee, and signed by Charles A. Folk, requesting him not to pay the money to his wife, as he was alive and kicking. Persons familiar with the writing of Folk identified the letter as genuine, but Mr. Dyer insisted that it was a forgery. The company, however, refused to pay, and suit was brought in the Court of Common Pleas at St. Louis to enforce the payment. Further proofs were necessary and were not wanting. The corpus delicti would settle the business, and when the ice in the river broke up in the spring, a colored man was found who testified that he saw the bloated carcass of folk among some fragments of floating ice sailing down towards the jetties, ready to be fished out by some enterprising coroner. Still, Mr. Hill was incredulous and was convinced that folk was alive. The circumstances of the case convinced him that a deep-laid conspiracy had been entered into to defraud his company, and he followed the policy of fighting the case to the bitter end if it cost the whole $10,000 to do it. In the fall, the case was removed to the United States Circuit Court in St. Louis. In the spring of 1876, the case was called, but the judge had more important matters on hand, and it was continued to September. Parties in interest entered into the plans of Mr. Hill, who had taken measures at the beginning to ferret out what he believed to be a cunning conspiracy. Mr. Hill went to Memphis and placed himself in communication with Mr. P. R. Athai, chief of police of that city, to whom he related all the facts in his possession. Folk 
had assumed the name of R. Russell at Memphis and afterwards that of J.R. Sloan. He had disappeared from Memphis and left no trace of his whereabouts. It is supposed that when he wrote to Mr. Hill, informing him of his existence in the flesh, he was moved partly by fear of detection and partly by revenge against Mosley. He believed that Mosley was living with his wife and had entered into the conspiracy to get rid of him and to share the spoils with the woman. Chief Athai sent a description of folk to all parts of the South, and a reward was offered for his arrest. After a diligent search of 18 months, the fugitive was arrested at a place called Surrounded Hill in Prairie County, Arkansas, by Sheriff Williams of that county. Mr. Hill obtained a requisition and brought the prisoner to St. Louis and lodged him in jail. Being taken into custody, folk expressed extreme gratification at the event. He had been wandering in the wild woods so long, a fugitive from justice, haunted by a remorseful conscience, and stung almost to madness by the conviction that his wife was not only untrue to him, but had conspired with her paramour to rid herself of his presence, that he was glad of a change. He had become a vagabond on the earth, afraid to look upon the face of a white man, and had made his home in a miserable cabin inhabited by Negroes, with whom he associated on terms of equality, though he knew they were his superiors in morality, if not in intelligence. When taken on board the train and placed in a sleeper, he could not contain his joy, but gave vent to his feelings in loud and oft-repeated self-gratulations. On being locked up in jail, he was still better pleased and declared his cell was a luxurious apartment compared with the place he had been occupying in Arkansas. He said he wished his wife and her lover no greater punishment than to be compelled to pass 13 months of their lives down in Rackensack, where he had been. End of Section 16